My first rifle was a 243. Papa gave daddy and daddy gave to me. And they tell me how to shoot with a steady hand. Well, we're here to kick off our first All American Wing Shooting Podcast with Chad Belding. What's up, everybody? I'm your first guest. My first guest. You've been a massive inspiration for me to actually make this happen. If truth be known, three years ago, I bought equipment, and then I couldn't figure out how to use it, and then I got busy and sidetracked and put it on the back burner, and then like I dished this stuff out when I moved and sold it, and then within, I don't know, 10 months, I was like, I'm going to make this happen. And luckily, you bought some podcast equipment? Yeah. So before you ever came on to the Foul Life podcast? Oh, years before. Years before. Well, it couldn't have been years before because you came on there like, I guess maybe a year before. How long has it been yeah, since you came on like, there? A year and a half, two years? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it was definitely a year before. So anyways, Jack was going to teach me how to use my new stuff, but ended up having to be someone else on your team. But thanks for your team. I'm on. So it's this gonna is happen. the... American Wing Shooting Podcast. All American Wing Shooting. All American podcast. Wing Shooting. So the brand is All American Wing Shooting or just All American Upland. Bird hunting really yeah. because when I think wing shooting I for some reason I always think upland. Is that is this does, does waterfowling get placed under wing shooting? I know that they have wings. Gunner. I get yeah. is it all shotgunning? Yeah. Are you sure? From an from an instructional perspective it does. Mm. Well, I, I've never heard anybody say, come and take your waterfowl shooting lessons. I don't know if you could teach somebody to shoot ducks or geese the same way you would instruct them to shoot a pheasant or a grouse or a quail or a partridge. I agree with that, but you have to start somewhere. The foundations are the same. Okay, so this podcast, regardless, is going to include everything wing. So it could be everything. a duck, it could be a goose, it could be training pigeons, it can be... You might get into some dog training. You might get into all sorts of stuff that has to do with shotgunning. Oh, yeah, shotgunning. All about shotgunning. And the people along the way, you know, like the biggest purpose was, and we talk about this all the time, just not recorded, about if we had known where we would have ended up when we started, like we wouldn't have believed it. But it was like all the people along the way, the stories along the way that have built this, it's hard to document everything, even though it seems like, every single second of your life you have a camera under like in your face you really don't there's so many stories that have built your career that nobody knows so um in me getting to this place i just wanted to take those people that have inspired me and put them on here and kind of recap those steps that just every time i'm i was on the road or had a phone call or um met somebody within the industry it just gave me another stepping stone to get a little further you know within my career knowledge wisdom whether it be dogs or shotguns or any products that we're using like it all started with a friendship for me so inspiration friendship knowledge gained and then are you also going to throw down instruction on this podcast we might we might throw down some instruction so like i would i would be interested in learning about wing shooting upland wing shooting different forms of wing shooting with maybe like an anna v like a churchill method like a tip of the week or just anything like goes into what your thoughts are on i think it's really neat to get people thinking about different ways to approach a certain subject and if this subject is going to be pheasant hunting what are some anna v ways to approach pheasant hunting like everything that goes into it like there's so many things that you you would tell expect. Us about, tell us about pheasant hunting, well, I've Chad. I've <laughs> been on my fair share of pheasant hunting. But I think that there's so many different things that can go into the different applications of hunting and wing shooting and shotgunning that it's best to get people thinking that there are different approaches. Like I don't always – I take it for granted that everybody understands my way. When a lot of people are looking at me like, are, what are you doing? Like, I don't even have any idea why you're doing it that way or what the reasoning is behind that. So my point is, is that 
I think that you have a lot of knowledge to share with people on how to, mm-hmm. and that people are starving for knowledge and that we take it for granted because you, you go out and you win all these trophies or you win all these championships or you hunt behind these great dogs and you hunt these great locations. And we take it for granted that everybody is getting to do that when they're not. Right. I agree too, because when you, once you get to hunt behind a great dog and you realize how much easier life gets and how much work they take off of you as the hunter, because they do things and their talent is way more than what we could ever do for a dog. Right. Yeah. And there are some people that just don't know the difference. So yeah, I agree with you. And so then, I, I just I'm hoping that you lay down knowledge because I'm I think people are hungry or thirsty or whatever you want to say. I think the word in the 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 hip culture or <laughs> the Eli Neely urban, urban dictionary, dictionary is that people like they're thirsty or something like. But I think people are thirsting for knowledge. I really do, and I think that if you have that and you can present it in in the right format, that people are going to be excited to hear a weekly tip. And it doesn't even have to be part of your conversations. Yeah. But it could be something to where they can know that every week they're going to get some knowledge laid down by you. Or it might be a guest instructor for that week that they record a tip for you. Because I'm really interested in the nuances of upland hunting. And there's not a lot of wing shooting instructors out there. It's it's almost like there's we're, we feel like we're flooded in the industry with newcomers, but we're not necessarily building experts. Yeah, I wouldn't argue that. Yeah. Because everybody's an expert today. Everybody has a YouTube channel. Everybody has a way to get their voice heard now through different social media platforms. Well, it's an art. And Before, you used to have to get a book deal or you had to have a TV yeah. deal. Or you had to have the platform to be able to, maybe it was a seminar series. But you had to have some sort of credibility in the space. And now everybody has instant credibility just by going out and saying that they've done this or they've done that. Because they're entertaining? Well, it might be because they're entertaining or it might be because they have the ability to post something every week that they feel like is, you know, and everybody has the, the, the right to do that. But if it's got to be something that has some credibility behind it, in my opinion, and I think that your championships and your prowess over the last – eight, 10 years of your life have gotten you to the point to where you've learned from the best and been around the culture enough to be able to have that credibility. Yeah, well, I haven't been around that long, but some people may not even know what you're talking about. So the the short version of the story is I started my outdoor professional life actually teaching ladies pistol basics and then hosting um, deer and turkey hunts in the South because that's what I was doing with my oldest daughter, and it turned out that just some clients that were wanting to learn some basic defensive pistol stuff uh, wanted to tag along. So this oh, whole thing organically happened. It was never really like a plan. So the DU chapter back home asked me to host one a shotgun, basic shotgun fundraiser thing for them, and I was like, sure. I mean, I've shotguns my whole life, but nobody in my family ever had a bird dog or never was like a wing shooter. So I agreed to it and I kept everybody safe. Like I understand safety, right? I'd gone through the whole NRA program, but I was not a wing shooter and I was terrible. So I went back to the DU committee and I was like, boys, you guys almost outed me as an epic fraud. We got to, we got to fix this. So I said, find me a coach ASAP. Because I lo- like I loved the culture of it. They just threw me in the deep end of the pool. And it was so much fun. And the women had a blast. And thank God everybody was a novice. Um, and so that's how I ended up meeting my coach. It was through a recommendation through like four people. So the people that I was in contact with had no idea who he really was. And um, I took a lesson with him within weeks. I was addicted that first day. It was um, like April 14th of 2016. And I started shooting with him every week. And then it was every day. It was like literally five or six days a week. I so shot was, with him I was for two close, and a half years. He was close to your home? He just happened to be close to your no, home? No, I was driving an hour and a half over the mountain every day, each way. It was a three-hour commute I drove to shoot. 
But I started teaching lessons with him. So within six months, I aced my NSCA instructor's course. And um, it just kind of evolved. And I just had a great coach. And, and like, I, I can really get off on a tangent with this because not only did he teach me shooting technique, but he honed in my mental management, which is what made me a good shooter. So um, mm-hmm. I always try to incorporate that in every single lesson that I've ever given. So Mental management mental or middle management, management? Mental management with the Lanny Bassam program. It's an incredible program. Mental management. So mm-hmm. this is kind of like just your psyche and how you... Yeah. So that Getting is how in the you... zone, staying in the zone, finding your subconscious. <clears throat> yeah, it's really, really good stuff. So, so through shooting, you learned how to be a champion but not just in shooting oh lord no in life shooting sports changed my life literally well maybe they didn't change they did change my life but they gave me a life actually my shooting lessons so i just really like came into my own and and found my personal confidence and like my purpose before that i would say i was just searching searching for it so yeah it was a really cool cool thing so what how i like started shooting was we were showing horses and a buddy of mine he actually took me bird hunt uh we went dove hunting when i was in high school i went one time i got to go one time but he started breeding short hairs and i just thought they were the cutest dogs ever i had no idea what i was getting myself into um so i probably made every first mistake that you could ever make <laughs> within wing shooting got the wrong dog the first time started way above my pay grade the first time like everything was just done wrong but i went back and made it right so i got mercy and she was a fruitcake i mean wide open hard to handle and they just threw me in the deep end of the pool with this tournament hunting thing so before i'd ever like gone on a quail hunt or pheasant hunt the only thing i'd ever done is sit beside a hay bale in a dove field with no dog uh, when i was like 16 They threw me in a tournament, a three-bird quail tournament with UFTA in Georgia. And at that time, I was the only female running in Georgia. This was years ago. And I was terrible. Like, you you know, I didn't know the rules. I didn't read the rule book. We get out there, and Stacy Hall is one of the founders. He wrote the rules. And he he finally said, hey, girl, you out of shells. It's like, no, I I got a pocket full of them. Like, just load it up and just keep on shooting. Yeah, no, you only get two shots per bird. I think I probably unloaded it on the first two birds, but. So you were hitting targets at this time with your coach, but your mental management didn't allow for. No, this was prior. Oh, this was before the Yeah, I, I knew nothing, knew nothing. They just threw me out there. So then my whole game changed. I quit tournament hunting because Demas was all about shooting sporting clays and I got suckered into the sporting clay stuff. And then I came back, came back to the dog life. And that's what, that's really where it all came together, you know, when. I had the miles under me and the knowledge that I had built along the way and I'd done trade shows and worked with a shooting sponsor and was able to take the things that I'd built because sometimes when we're learning things we don't really realize what we're learning right so we take that knowledge for granted but I, I was put in situations to use that knowledge and implement it in other people's lives and the main thing that I think I get out of shooting sports for other people is the personal confidence that you can that just comes with shooting sports no matter what kind of gun you're picking up i mean my choice is definitely a shotgun but like we went and shot pistols yesterday was that yesterday day before yeah and like i've just been on a super high after shooting pistols because i haven't done it in so long yeah i think that it's one of the greatest things you can do because it, it teaches you a lot about yourself it gets you on a different mindset of safety and responsibility yeah and it gives you a uh, and a, a different kind of confidence that you can confidently pick up that gun. I don't like to call them a weapon. It's weird to me to call them weapons. Me too. It? But I think it gives you a uncanny amount of confidence to be able to to be able to pick up a gun or a firearm, whether it's a handgun or a muzzleloader or a rifle or a shotgun, and be able to just have confidence in loading it. And knowing your way around it, it gives you a, a a feeling of serenity, in my opinion, and confidence of like I can do this, and I'm I can't wait for more. And that's what people don't understand about guns is that they're nothing to be afraid of. 
Right. You it's know, a tool. It's a tool. And once you, you know, you could really mess your thumb up with a hammer, you know, if you don't have the confidence and the know-how, right? Right. And with the gun is the same thing. You can, there's, there's never been knock on wood accidents around my properties with firearms, right? And it's because you, you really strive for safety and that confidence of what you're talking about. And I think that it's really neat that your story and your life really took off and not to mention your daughters Mm -hmm, um, because of a gun. I think that's a really cool concept that a gun wasn't just something that you felt you needed to go out and get your CCW to protect you and your family because you're a single mom. But I think that it's cool that it gave you this ability to think on a different level, perform on a different level, and really broaden your horizons in whether it was revenue or your career, whatever the case might be. That's pretty cool. Thanks. Well, I mean, I was raised in a hunting family, shooting family. Um, but my dad was actually shot with a thirty out 6 to the head January 1st of 1984. At, and he was sitting in a deer stand. And so even though that accident happened and it was surrounded by guns, like I really think the thing that held my family together was hunting camp. Because after my grandpa passed away, everybody just faded away because people stopped going. And I'm really the only one, I think, that still stays in the woods. And I appreciated growing up like that. Um, So something that I wanted to implement with my girls. And it did kind of take me, I guess, back to my redneck, you know, red dirt Georgia roots once I got back into shooting every single day. It was on a whole different high than when we just had family dinners and was shooting 22s in the backyard which is a really cool thing like it was just the ruger iron sight rifle you know and we had a couple of them that kind of went around the family so when we'd get together for dinners we'd just set up cans and whoever won got to take the gun home when i finally beat my dad i just put it away and quit going to family dinners so i didn't have to give it up <laughs> really yeah so it's like the stanley cup yeah and my grandmother that's like, kind of weird, though, that just anybody that shot good that day gets to take a gun. Yeah, out. it was just, well, I mean, it was within the family, you know. It was just like one of those things. And my grandmother, let's see her. She told this story when I took her deer hunting with SCI. Uh, something like they went, maybe they went scouting or they were coming home from deer camp. So they had five kids. I think there was only four with them at the time. And they just stopped on the side of the road somewhere at this open field, right? They're like, let's just do some target shooting. So my grandpa took like a 16-penny nail and and nailed up an apple on a tree. And everybody was like set up shooting. And they're like, come on, Granny, come take your turn. And she was like, okay. And she's like this sweetest, like soft-spoken lady. So she goes up there and she just finishes the nail on the tree. And they're like, got back in the car. Okay, let's go home. Like just sharpshooter. Really? Yeah, she's still cool. She still does it. I mean, at 84 last year, she was hitting bullseyes with her um, Marlin 3030s she hadn't shot in 20 years. I sighted it in with four with four bullets because, you know, we could only shoot so many before, you know, we knew that we probably couldn't find any more. And she wanted to go deer hunting one more time. So we made it happen for her last year. And within two shots, she was back on a bullseye at 80, 84 years old. And smoked a deer. Smoked a deer, yeah, first shot, dropped it. Well, actually, it ran like, I don't know, 25 yards or something, and she complained about it, that it didn't drop in its tracks. <laughs> really? Yeah. Lunged it? Yeah, she's cute. She's 84. I got she's a question 85. for you. When you, go to a, when you go to a shooting coach, what's the first thing that happens? I mean, I know. Oh, like with shotguns? Well, I know the introduction's there, and I know that the sign-up is there and all that. but Like safety? What, yeah, like what is the first thing that goes down? in a course like that gun fits going to be first there's no reason to teach you how to shoot a bad gun right the one that doesn't fit for you and that's a thing like i get dms all the time i want my girlfriend to go i want to surprise her what what lady's gun do i get or even ladies are messaging me saying they want to surprise their significant other with a gun and that's probably the worst thing you can do when it comes to shotguns you just make a date of it and go make sure that it's the one that feels right um, for you and so that would be number one gun fit I kind of imagine that it would be and then 
safety is there obviously because they can't take it for granted that any of the students know but mm -hmm. the the fit of a gun is something that i think a lot of people take for granted um in what i do you know a lot of people will just be like i got a super black eagle three well you know well it comes with a shim kit it comes with you know different options yeah i found out the hard way you found out the hard way yeah picking up a gun that don't fit i'm like so pissed like why isn't this thing dropping i'm dead on it and then i look down and i can see five miles of the rib what but what as far My, as like the first thing that goes into the fit of a gun is is going to be your is it your arm length length of pull is going to be your distance from the center of trigger to the center of the butt pad center of trigger to center of butt pad it's going to be your drop which is the angle off the back of the rib to the top of the, the butt pad there and then you're going to have your pitch which is going to be the angle of the butt pad as it sits on your shoulder so it's a combo it's a combo of things it's going to be about feel it's going to be the balance of where the weight is on that gun you know it all fits different for for different people so you literally just pick every single one of them up and don't even worry about brands or anything. Just pick them up. And you just know. You just have like an aha moment. It's fun to watch. And do you... Unless you're going to go, you know, to the extent of getting like a custom fitted gun and go to a gun fitter, like with the shims. If you have something and you, you want to make it work, then you go and let them tweak it to the point that like, like I can't wait to go see Rob Roberts. <laughs> So when you're there for your first, what's your instructor's name? Demas. So when you meet Demas and you go there and you're getting fitted for a gun, what? Oh, like he said it was an absolute nightmare. Nightmare. So, okay, we had, like, terrible gun fit. I had every eye dominance problem in the world, which but you wait struggle a minute, with. But why? Because you have, like, your arms are too long or, like, why would you be a nightmare in gun fitting? Uh, I'm just trying to figure out, like, can you be you know, have an awkward shaped body and that you're not going to fit into a certain kind of gun. I'm trying yeah. to figure out like why it would yeah, be Yeah, because it could be too short. So like your duck gun, your length of pull was too short for me. So I saw really high, like my head sits really high. But if I could get back a little further so that I could get down on the gun, then it would have dropped my eye right on the rib where it was sitting above it. So I could see the whole thing. So when you look down your shotgun, you should see just the bead sitting at the end unless you have a mid bead i mean of course when you're shooting you look way past that but that's what you should see when you mount a gun so the difference is in like sporting clays in america they teach a pre-mount but in the in the field we're not pre-mounting you know it's it's instinctual so it's totally different so does it give you like this you know, like there's some people that were like, if I don't have my set of golf clubs, if I don't have my baseball bat, they have a hard time like going up. Oh yeah, the field's and different. Performing. Don't you think so? Well, I don't know. I I think that there's something. You're the one that always brings the guns everywhere. Right, but I'm never. But I always shoot a different gun almost every day. I don't get too attached to a gun. Like if in snow goose season, obviously I don't because I have certain models that are just. You know, for that that yeah. are designed and, and allocated for the you know the ex, the extensions and the magazines and and all that but you are typically shooting the same gun in a different gauge well, i mean i shoot benelli every day i know but i'm saying like the only time that you picked up the 828 in the season what we were shooting sporting clays i would never shoot an over under in a waterfowl hunt well i know but did but you didn't hunt anything else but what i'm saying is that every day i don't shoot the same exact benelli model and they're not all set up the same. You know, mine are all different shim kits. They're all different lengths. They're all, um, it's not like I have like a... Well, then you might be just the exception to the rule. No, I'm not saying that I'm an exception. I'm saying that when it comes to the mental part of hunting, mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, man, I'm not shooting the gun that, that Demas sized for oh, me today. Oh, yeah, I mean, that could. That because could, I heard you say in experience, right? I heard you say in Snow Goose Camp, like... You know, I need a gun that's fitted for me more. Like you started messing with your head right from the beginning. If you didn't think, well, that no, you were because what happened was I threw it up, and I didn't hit what I was looking at. And then 
I was like, why in the world didn't I think to adjust that in the middle of that thing flying over us? But because I've always picked up the same gun, right? So I was like, why in the world is this not working? And then after it was over with, I started going through my bullet list of the things, you know, to fix. And I was like, oh, my God, it was this simple thing. All I needed to do is push it forward a little bit, throw my head down, and I would have been right on. So you But it takes experience to do that. So, like, that's the thing is that you've done this for so long that you you think about all those little bullet points probably and you don't even realize you do it as subconscious where some people if they're not shooting as much i mean there are very few people that get to shoot as much as we do yeah then they find the comfort zone knowing they're on gear that's a comfort zone so is there when you start thinking about that comfort zone and you you have that certain gun that you've been fitted for when you go to this shooting class is it the one that you take with you everywhere that you go in the beginning of your career oh yeah are you asking if that's what I did yeah because I'm like you know in our situation you know you might you might go get fitted in your shooting sporting clays in this class with an over under right but then you get invited on a duck hunt and you gotta change it they hand you this gun yeah because sporting clays too you know that people tend to use longer barrels um yeah, I could play some mind tricks on people. But, you know, also, too, when you get into the hunt, you don't really think about all those things. You don't have time to set up. It's a different, it's a whole different approach. So. That's where I'm going with this, is, uh, that, is that when yeah, you're on a sporting there. clays course, it's a completely different mindset. Now, I've never been a competitive shooter, so I wonder if the mindset of a competitive shooter in the sporting clays or the five stand or the skeet or whatever it is, I wonder if, I, I don't have a competitive mind shoot, mindset when I hunt either. I have more of an instinctual mindset of, uh, you know, taking the entire hunt in as it comes. Right, right. And shooting is just a part of that. Uh, obviously, safety is above and beyond everything when it comes to the gun part you of the hunt. Really but, compare. Uh, but it's almost like I already kind of visualize what I'm going to do with the gun with through visualization process, which I would think that visualization is a huge part of this mental mindset or the mental conditioning that Demas would would teach i've never taken a lesson from mr demas but visualization (laughs) in the way that i hunt or i execute a shot or the way that i approach the shot is all done prior to the actual engagement if that makes sense yeah i mean there's a lot that happens before you even pull a trigger with a lesson do you want do you want the bullet list of how this is going to work yeah i kind of do because i want to know if i'm shooting a shotgun the right way oh my gosh i'm being for real you I'm not, do. I know, but that, that's the thing is that when I go hunting, I hunt in a group. So do I ever really know if I'm hitting them? Second off. You do know. Like, you mm, know. I, I know some of the time, but there's also times that. Just that, because somebody else hits the same duck or goose doesn't mean you didn't hit it. You know, but you feel it when you I feel know like I shoot. I feel like I shoot very well in a duck hunting, goose hunting situation because of my instincts. But I don't shoot over a 6970 when I go on a sporting clays course. Now, well, it's totally if, different. I know. And you shoot on the sporting clay course like you're sitting in a duck blind. What do you mean? Well, you got a low gun, like not even like proper low gun. You just got it hanging there. Like I just kind of pick it up and say pull. Yeah, which is fine when when the when the clays fly like a duck. But when you got those chandelles or. That incomer, remember that incomer in Nashville? Did I miss it? <laughs> <laughs> I just don't remember. Yeah, you did struggle with that, but it was a technical target, so it just flew different. So you remember, remember I told you about li- lads, lines, angles, distance, and speed. You don't want to get into all that stuff because it screws up your your hunting, shooting. So I honestly would say if you plan on being a hunter. Go take instinctual shooting lessons before you get all geeked out on technical shooting on the clay course. Um, And I did it backwards, right? Like I learned technical shooting before. I told you I made every every wrong mistake. Like I did it. I think that there's so many – there's so much to think about when you start thinking about what you just said, like the lads. Like We haven't even got to like – foot placement shooting from your hip not from your upper body i mean there's it's an art that takes years 
And years. I don't know if you ever, like, if you ever master it. You know, like, that would be like saying somebody mastered golf after we just watched um, Tiger Woods just tank the other day. Yeah, but he's coming back off a huge major car wreck Yeah, and I know, surgery. but I'm just telling you, like. Just him swinging the golf club is awesome. Never, you just never, you just never learn it all. You can't learn it all. Mm-mm. But that's what's so cool about shotgunning. Um, just the culture of it is I addictive. just think there's so many different styles of shotgunning and different mm-hmm. things that you're going to need to get ready for. And I think that, you know, when you start talking about... Now, we America, should not overwhelm people because it's so much fun even when you miss. <laughs> it's, it's great when you miss, but I think that it's awesome for somebody to know that you're not just going to be standing there with your feet in the same position. You might be chasing chucker on an incline like this and you got to stabilize yourself and balance and use your core you got to use some kind of athletic oh, ability gosh, yes and, and there's one one of my hunts last year in north dakota oh will haunt me for forever because you want to limit out you know i mean when you're hunting wild birds it's a big deal when you actually get on them and then it burns your butt forever when when you make stupid mistakes right so i'm in the cattails and finally on birds is my last day there the sun is starting to set and the clock's ticking and you really want to just have that experience because you don't know that you're going to get back there you know and dogs worked so hard all day long they want you want them to have that reward of retrieve so i'm in the cattails and two bust open i drop one and i could not get in front of the other one all because of foot placement I literally just could not swing around that Pheasants? that fast. Yeah. Cause Did you yell rooster? Sh- just shut it. <laughs> I'm asking. <laughs> Do you yell rooster every time? Do I personally? No. Or is that just done by a guide when he's got multiple hunters so they don't shoot a hen? It is helpful. Are you, are you being derogatory right now? No, not one bit. I'm asking like when you're hunting. You said you've been on pheasant hunts. You know. How I have works. and every single time I hear somebody yell rooster. Well, you, it is it is beneficial to yell it when you see, if you see it, just in case, you know, it changes angles and heads down there, people are ready. This is the American Upland. All-American Upland? All-American Upland brand, but this is the All-American Wing Shooting Podcast. Yeah. Okay, so when, okay, forget the rooster question, but. I've hunted with two people on pheasants up to like a line of 10. You I don't may, recommend the 10. But in wing shooting, you want to hit your target. But then when you apply that to the hunt, you made a comment just now about your dog. Like, what's more important to the dog? I would think that the point would be more important than the retrieve. Okay, well, I was running a flusher. Okay, so he flushes the bird, which is important. He gets the bird up. Yeah. Or she gets the bird up. I'm wondering how it, I'm just wondering, like. You don't you don't know all those memes where it, where the dog is looking at the owner like, you're such an idiot. I'm going to fire you and get another one because you keep missing. Well, I could see on a duck dog because a duck dog is like sitting there all day and his eyes watching are, yeah. and they see the ducks come in and then you shoot and nothing falls. He's like, I'm just going to sit in this blind all day. But as a flusher or a pointer, I think that their job is like, well, I get to do this. I get the nose and point. I get to honor that other dog. But now I'm going to find one and now I'm going to stick it foot in the air tail in the air so the whole training process you know how this works the whole training process is that retrieve so a lot of times they get the fun bumper after they've done their job right so their job is what find the birds that's so it's just instinctual for a dog to go and point then they're really not trained to point oh i wouldn't want a dog i had to train to point i didn't know that why not so the dog is born with that natural ability Mm -hmm. you want that natural ability so do they do you it's, it's even a bonus when they're when they're naturally semi-steady too. I have so many questions tuna. about upland honey. Oh my goodness! Well, let's not get off on pointing dogs because we're sitting here talking about my big oops and footwork and footwork. Yes, and well, that's where I was. You're going in the with marsh, it. you know. So you're in you're in water and cattails, and you got all that stuff flying up your nose and in your face, and you're that, trying to swing with it, and then your dog looks back and it's like, "What just happened?" And you just feel so bad. That's, you guys say, you guys say, no bird, no bird, and just remind yourself, I just missed. And All because where, I didn't take the time to make sure I'd swung around. Had you practiced that shot before? How do you practice cattails when you live in Georgia? 
I don't know. There's a whole in, the, in North Georgia. You can use something else that's deterring your vision yeah. or the way that you can no, get you, your body you around. But footing is, is huge. Okay, and then you apply that to the other form of wing shooting that we're talking about, waterfowl hunting. Now you mm-hmm. got squatting up and down out of a pit. You got using your core, using your abdominals to yeah. sit up out of a layout blind. You got so many different. So many people like you got to watch your swing. Things are flying. Over, well, let's just say you know, that you're by just, yourself, though, and just all of the different applications that you could be faced with. You might be in a public marsh on a, a, a stump or a marsh stool to where your feet are uneven because your left waiter boot goes down in the mud three inches and your right one doesn't. You, down. you know, so there's all <laughs> yeah. these different things that people are going to have to be prepared for. And, and, you know, listening to your experiences, I think it's going to be great that you're starting to get into the waterfowl game a little bit more to where you're going to have an understanding of, wow, this is kind of different to where, you know, when 60 mallards descend on you and you hear this, you hear the famous words, get them or take them or whatever the the call out is, you know, there's a, there's an art form that goes into transitional shooting of the first duck to the second duck, because it is overwhelming a lot of times. And a lot of people have to get ready for the difference in saying pool and seeing a target flying no matter what the target is doing, whether it's a crossing Oh, because jump. it's predictable anyways. Well, it can be predictable if you do it more and more. But what I'm saying is the adrenaline rush of the hunt is on a different level. It's a totally different level. And I'm wondering if competition shooters, there's so much that goes that's going through my mind right now of like the, the mindset of a competition. To, to me, I think that you have to stay relaxed to be a consistent and competitive and successful competition sport and we talked shooter. about that too while we were I don't, I don't you can't get all giddy and, right in hunting right. you're so giddy and you have to teach yourself to pump the brakes i don't think you were breathe. there that day i think that was the day you send me in the deep end of the pool like i always do you said we're on the snow goose hunt yeah here's your gun here's my dog go get her done on my second day there and the and the guys were we were all talking about it in in the pit about getting excited i'm like no you don't get excited until it's over right like you got to stay in you got to stay in the zone until it's over and when we're out there retrieving up everything we just dropped then we can you know let the the adrenaline hit us but you guys stay cool calm and collected and get her done first it's impossible no you train yourself for it you can't train yourself for what the majesty of waterfowl well it is a different level but i do think that what Demas put me through absolutely does help. I think that you could absolutely get instruction on it through courses. But when you get on a Chucker Mountain in northern Nevada where there's no such thing as planted birds, okay, you have no idea. Right. You have no idea what's getting ready to happen because your dog could be 40 yards out in front of you and he might point at something in the sagebrush that's just lingering there. But your vision is on this set of rim rocks that's 200 yards ahead and your anticipation, your adrenaline, no pun intended, but your goosebumps start to, to, to come up because you're like, that's the home of the chucker bird, right? That's how I was always trained. You see rim rocks, you think chucker. So you're walking at that, and then all of a sudden your dog says, uh-uh, there's one here that's just walking back to that rim rock yeah. from this guzzler down here. You just got to drink a water. And they always say that chucker run uphill and they fly downhill, which always messed with me, right? So all of this stuff's going through your head. At the same time, you're visualizing what's getting ready to happen at that rim rock. You know that your pointer is going to go into work mode. Bam, we're going to be in the birds, right? And there's so much that goes into that you can't teach at that moment. No matter how many courses, no matter how many instruction, no matter how many lessons that Demas teaches you, in my opinion, he's a, he's a badass. I get it. He taught you so much. <laughs> but once you get behind that dog and you're in the mountains and your heart rate is not 70 anymore, it's 140 because you're walking on an incline. You're sweating a little bit. You're probably thirsty a little bit because you haven't taken the time to hydrate during the day because all you care about is seeing the majesty of the chucker bird. And now you're like, all right, am I prepared for what's getting ready to happen on this flush? The point's there, but that You can't point, let yourself ask yourself a, a question you like not, that. You cannot not ask yes, yourself. Yes, you can. You tell yourself, just like playing sports of any kind, you know, you trust your training you know exactly what's going to happen because it's happened so Every many times. Every single athlete in the world gets off of their game plan, whether it's an MMA yeah, fighter no, or a ball. You, can't, you can't talk to yourself like that and question yourself. I don't understand what you're saying, though. It's, I'm talking because about... you just said, I'm, ta- I'm talking about happens, your, your am psych- I ready? Am I ready for what's about to happen? You, you don't can, ask yourself, am I ready? You're like, 
hell yeah, I'm ready. Let's go get her done. I don't know if you can do that. Yes, you can. There's no way. Absolutely, I do. Not with the the amount of adrenaline. And it doesn't mean that it's going to happen every single time, but that's how you talk to yourself. Okay, and my point, Anna, is that (laughs) once it happens, you get lost in the majesty of the power or the power of the spectacle. In the zone? Yeah, you could be as ready as you say, okay, I see the decoys right there. I know that the ducks are going to be floating over that spinning wing. You could tell yourself that all day long. I think your world is just a little different. Oh, I'm talking about the chucker. I'm, try, I'm talking the chucker. It's still, it's still a level of surprise. That's what I was trying to say is that when I see that rim rock and I know that I'm getting ready to be in the birds because that's where chuckers hang out, you can't prepare yourself for what's getting ready to happen when those chucker birds flush. No matter if you've seen it one time or a thousand times, when they flush and you hear that wing beat. Yeah. <laughs> Same you, with a cubby quail down south. Okay, same with cubby yeah. quail. You can't prepare yourself for that no matter what kind of lessons you take. I'm not saying that lessons don't work. Please don't take it that way. I'm <laughs> saying that how do you take the sporting clay course or the lesson at a sporting clay course with Demas and apply it to the real thing in hunting? I don't think you can. Well, I don't think you clays? could te- I don't think you could teach somebody to be ready for what they're getting ready to experience. In the duck woods. Well, if you want to know the truth, when I was when like the last two years when I was sold out to um to tournament hunting and I was hardcore serious, there was a lot of uh meditation that went into it. Um, and especially on like finals days. Well, I mean, I would do it every single morning at every big tournament. But I have a routine of meditation that changes changes your mentality like you don't go into it with a mentality it's a party um i don't think that you're going into it with that mentality at all i'm just trying to simply say that you cannot prepare yourself for what you're getting ready to see see when you start talking about wing shooting i don't think that it can be taught now i think that you can teach shotgunning yeah but you cannot teach wing shooting. Now you could say, okay, when the, the quail flies, you have to lead it this far. But when that sound hits and that dog points or that... You do think you can teach lead? I think you can teach lead for sure. But when you get into that situation of the actual hunt, I don't know how you're going to get it across to your audience that the only way to to learn that part of the wing shoot, of mm-hmm. actual hunt, the hunt is massive failure i think that you're going to fail so much in the entire career of your wing shooting i don't think that you're going to be able to go out there and say the commitment that it takes to get to that level of training like to to lay the foundation to get to that level right because you got to graduate levels but to get to that level of mental management like there are very few people that have that much time it's That's, not like you just take five lessons and you're you're at that point. Okay, they might not have that much time to take mental management and take as many lessons, but for the rest of their life, they're going to try to hunt as many days as they possibly can with friends or family or by themselves, whether they're a weekend warrior or somebody that takes two weeks off a year and goes every day of the, day of the year where they're shooting grouse in the morning in Canada or ducks in the morning and grouse in the afternoon. They're going to go through all of these experiences to where they are going to have to accept the fact that failure is inevitable because Mother Nature blows your mind too much, and that's what I, that's my it, simple it point. It is Anna. amazing. It's like, amazing. It is an amazing you can't, I don't, you, can't pre- you can't prepare yourself for it. You can't prepare yourself. No matter how many ducks you see come into the decoys, and you say get them, you're going to you're going to have hiccups to where you're going to be like, I just missed that duck clean as day, <laughs> and it's thirty yards away, belly up, breast exposed, right to me. And I miss it because I was so infatuated in. or I was so, like, mesmerized by what just happened. Well, I, d- I did that. All I wanted to do was film you calling those mallards. And I didn't even pre- press record on my phone. <clears throat> but you were – but And then they were already sitting on the water. But no matter how much you've trained yourself as a shotgunner, it's hard to be prepared once the lid flies open on those pit blinds and you stand up and see I the power of what's going on. Probably, and, and the biggest thrill of that that I've experienced is in the grouse woods because you're just trompsing along. you got to watch every step of where you walk. You're going to end up tripping or stepping in a water hole up to your waist or something, 
and then all of a sudden you hear them and you don't even know what direction they're coming from. That's probably the most thrilling of what you're talking about. The grouse woods is where it's at. Of having that thrill of excitement and unpreparedness. Yep. Okay, so we are agreeing to that, that you can never be prepared for it. <laughs> you can't. Okay. So what's your biggest hurdle on the road? Hurdle? Yeah, hurdles, you know? Okay. Shooting shooting hurdles, dog hurdles. We, all, we talk so much about shooting. We normally always talk about the dogs. Hmm. I don't consider any of that kind of hurdles. I mean, I don't get I don't get too flustered about. I wish I was a better handler. I guess that's kind of a hurdle of mine is that I have so much confidence in the dogs that I hunt with that I feel like they're going to get it right. So I've never really. <laughs> that is so funny because when I dropped Axel off, that they literally talked about that. I I've never I don't think that I practice enough to be a good handler, and he lets me get away with a lot because he or whatever dog I'm with is so talented because mm-hmm. of the training. But I think that my biggest hurdle would probably be that I'm hardest on myself about my handle skills with a dog. Um, because you have to have credibility. You have to have trust in that dog. And I think I do with a dog like Axel, but I think that his talent rises above the mistakes I make as a handler, whether it's whistling too much getting him to pop or whether it's not letting him sit and turn and sit the right amount of seconds before right. i give him his next command yeah um the lines that i line him up on are very poor like because just i'm like wind. because it's like as when you're when you're a trainer or you're handling him in a competition you you kind of you kind of don't have that anticipation of this is go time like yeah. the geese are flying, they're coming off the roost. The ducks are flying. This is, I got to get back in. So I'm just more like, okay, if he gets offline, I'll whistle and correct him real quick. Well, that's not good. Right. That's not, uh, that's not how a handler is supposed to be. I really d- couldn't tell you right now, like how to line a dog up. Do you, you know, using your hip and using your knee and using your hand and, you know, and getting him right on the line and the, and the, your voice commands, I'm still really confused on lines on how to get them on the, like if it's a 300 yard blind i can get axel there but he's meant to go straight to it right from the from the and get-go. he knows that too and he's a dog that you gotta handle like i mean he's a he's a got a big motor yeah he's got a and i will tell you too because i've done so much training like that like some i mean a few years now of hunt test training right but it was different. It was on a totally different level when we were out there with a thousand decoys right in front of us and the wind, the way that it was, and worrying about if there was another group flying in. And yeah, it was a totally different level. And I and I, that's kind of where I was going with addictive, my last comments. Like that was an addictive high. I would rather have ran the dog all day long than ever picked up a shotgun. It's in a, that yeah, scenario I, I think that that part of the hunt has become so important to me mm-hmm. to where i've been able to say this is key right now okay this is key of what my experience is right now like i know there's another flock coming yeah but i see that that blind and this performance that axel or duff or slash or whichever one of the dogs is getting ready to go is going to make my day way more than calling in another group of ducks or geese but again here we go with the different aspects of a hunt to now you got to start thinking are you a guide you an outfitter (laughs) you owe it to your clients to get back in the blind and have a dog that's there and back so you might be looking at that blind and lining him up but then you look up to the horizon and you see another eight pack of Canada's coming and you're like, you got to take that dog and say, Hey, now's not the time. Put him back into the, back into the box. Here these geese come, block, block, run, 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 get them. You shoot six of them. He's like on them. He marks them. He's oh, not even yeah. thinking about that blind anymore, but you're thinking like, I still got to get Axel on right. that blind. That's all awesome stuff is part of the hunt. Yeah. Now he goes into this water retrieve, swims, grabs this big Canada. Then that Canada's banded. So now everybody's flipping out that that bird's got a band <laughs> on it. They're holding it up going, oh my God. And your whole mentality is like, I got to make sure that he stays on task to get these other birds. While there could be more coming in. While there's another blind over here from the last flock. And now here comes 12 more mallards. And you got to remember where everything's at. And you got to remember where and it's 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 an ongoing, just this 
a huge amount of gratification. Don't get me wrong, but it's like it's a overload. Job. It's like sensory yeah. overload. You're like, blah, blah. you got to call. You have to flag. You have to gun safety. You have to pull the pit lid. You have to watch the, the decoys and the wind. You got to remember to put one in the chamber. You got to remember all that stuff. <laughs> but then at the same time, now you add on this entirely different, this new aspect of my hunting career now is handling dogs. Yeah. And it's so rewarding. Oh my gosh. But, now, but, it's, yes. so, but, it's, but it's, so, it's a job in itself. It you, is. And you, when we dropped Axel off, I wanted to stay there. Are you trying to tell me that Brad Arrington talked smack about me when you dropped Axel off? Or did Clark or Lee say something about my <laughs> handling skills? Are you saying that right now that they talk smack about me? No, I, I'm not saying that at all. We just had, you know, conversations about how the season ended. And it was time for Axel to go back to school, you know. What did they say but, there specifically? I mean, we had so much fun running dogs with them all afternoon. I really just want to go down there and just go to handling camp and just be a dog assistant for the summer. It was so much fun. It was so interesting. And plus, I had not been exposed to SRS stuff. So they showed us some of that and just the different levels of that. So, yeah, the, the dog handling thing is it's probably taken over the wing shooting thing, even though I'd always kind of prided myself in the shotgunner stuff and I'd get geeked out about techniques and guns and all the parts and fit and different applications. You know, I'm a side-by-side geek too, but the dog thing's probably trumping it all now. I don't know if it's not for me either anymore. I think that my, you made a comment before that I want to make sure that I go back on about when you're hunting wild birds, you want to get a limit. And I think that that sets expectations, in my opinion, that aren't. They're not realistic. They're not realistic. No, but I, I, you I can't, can't help but think, man, if I could really make that happen, that would be just absolutely incredible. I get that. I understand that. But I think that there's so much more to the hunt than a limit. Now, a dog retrieve and making it, sure that that dog knows that he's rewarded and that he did his job or her job. Oh, yeah. Very important. And I do agree with you on that about the retrieve. I'm starting to see that now because that's like the ultimate reward. And maybe their mindset isn't so much about, oh, I pointed. Well, they don't give, maybe they don't care about that because that's what they were born and bred to do. But the retrieve is something that shows them like, oh, the job's completed. And that's going to depend on like who you talk to, to in, in, the, in the pointing world. But like, how many times do you have to go out to the field or trips or in the grouse woods before you get a limit? Like, sometimes there are some people that are with just wild lucky birds? in that. Yeah, and that even happens with pin raised all the birds, time. Even like, at, a, hunt, even at a, a plantation style or something to where you know that you're going to have an experience with, with, you know, kick birds or whatever you call them. Those are still challenging, too. That's a oh, great yeah. way to learn as well. Well, we, we all have to talk about that another day, but. But when you get multiple birds that fly up and you miss layups and you know that you could have gone to the bar at the end of the day and been like, my dog put up all these birds and we brought them home. That's incredible. So now you're talking about like a bragging deal, though. Yeah, because it's incredible. Like it's something that you just you um, it's a team effort and, and it's rare. I mean, there are some people that do it all the time, but I just haven't had that many chances, I guess. Like, I, I guess mean, limits are I think limits are cool, year. but I think that. There's a lot more that goes into a tailgate. But it's not the actual limit of it. It's the journey that got you to that. You know, exactly. it's like a it's like winning a lottery ticket. Who ain't going to brag about getting the winning ticket? But you can't brag about just having one bird instead of oh my God, your limit? yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going to remember that for forever. I mean, we had the experience, and and then that one time we got two, and the even though I shot both birds, the coolest thing about it was the blind retrieve into the pond i mean it's just the whole thing the whole thing just adds up it's amazing lifestyle i always tell people that now big game hunting's cool and i've done it um but people get jacked up on it like they're like uh, with an elk like i am with a duck or you are with a grouse and that's awesome that's what's so cool about hunting what's amazing to me though is that I could literally see a 400-inch elk, and I'm like, it's pretty. It's majestic. There's people that lose their shit over that. Like, they'll their, their heart rate will go through the roof, and they can't breathe. I know, and I think I'm just motivated just to go with the dogs. Like, I don't want to take a weekend out of a season 
or longer to go chase something else knowing that my dog has a limited life. But uh, but there's a lot of elk hunters that love dogs and they have great dogs. They might have hound dogs for cougars in the off season. They yeah. might have a pointing dog to where they might go on a grouse hunt once in a while. But when they see that elk, they lose their mind. Yeah, okay, I don't, I don't lose happened. my mind. But when I when people look at me, an elk hunter will look at me like, "Are you kidding me?" Like when I see a mallard duck, like when we were driving the other night, we we were going to that that yeah, there were two concert, that, flew right, that yeah. greenhead flew in and he lit right in that ditch on the side of the road. Yeah, I literally never quit thinking about that <laughs> duck the rest of the night. Yeah. What he did to me, what he did to me, just in, it was almost like God was looking at us driving down that road. And he's like, I'm going to screw Chad's life up for the next 24 hours. That's all I thought about was ducks again. And it's this many months until I get to do that. But oh, it, I know. Like when we left. But an elk hunter, hold on. An elk hunter would look at me and be like, dude, that's just a little duck in a ditch. And that's what's so cool about hunting is that you when I see niche. quail, when I see quail, I don't think of it like you do. I don't think of Bob White just in all the old oil paintings that you see at a lodge or a Southern Plantation style hunt. I don't think of it that way. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people do. And that's what's so neat is that you can do it on horseback. You can do it behind dogs. You can do it this application. Duck hunting, you can do it this way. You can do it that way. Some people don't get too fired up about a duck. I see a duck and I lose my mind. He sees an elk or she sees a moose. They lose their mind. I don't care. Like I could see a 400 inch elk right there on the mountain. And all it takes, I'm driving to that elk. And if I see one duck out of my peripheral to my right, I'm taking a right and going to watch that duck for the rest of the day. And that's what, that's what people have to be prepared for that when they get into this American upland or American wing shooting. The and, addiction? And the addiction, because it will take over your life. That's why we say in some of the things we do is that we merely exist in a duck's world. And you see kind of that logo we have of a duck's foot holding the earth. Mm -hmm. They literally control most of my movements. Well, you, on, you post a lot and say, this life... And it and now I get it. I mean, I've traveled with you now, and it is totally different. But it's not even about always sitting in the blind, because like I said, there's so much of your life that happens that's so um, special, just with the interaction of people and stuff. That not even during duck season. It yeah, be, that nobody's ever going to see, or just even at the lodge. But I've I always mean, given the mallard duck the credit for making all that happen. Yeah. I know nobody knows about the ping pong tournaments and stuff. You know, I would have never went to Nashville, Tennessee. I'm not saying never, but I would have never got to experience Nashville the way that I got to yeah. if it wasn't for a mallard duck. If it wasn't for a mallard duck, I wouldn't get to experience the SCI convention with you and Laird and all of the people. A mallard duck brought me to all of that. And you talk about this like we talk about it, but I don't know that you actually talk about it enough um, to the world because. I think one thing that, well, I know it's probably my biggest failure of all time is the lack of documentation that I do or th that I share. Um, because I've always said in person, I do this great. Like there was nothing special about me. I literally made every epic mistake possible. I started everything I ever did the wrong way, but I just never said no. Like I, I didn't let failure hold me back or a miss or making a complete fool of myself in a tournament or whatever like I just loved it so much it motivated me to get better it motivated me to learn about the dogs and like how do I have a better dog in front of me or how do I make my dog better am I the problem you know how do I get my shooting better and and then find the people that help me get to that next level and this world is so special because everybody wants to help everybody I agree so I think this podcast will help people um, you know, prepare themselves because I, I, I think the main message is that what I get out of you, Anna, is how rewarding life is because of the woods or camp or the hunt or the dogs, what it's done for Tater, what it's done for JC May, what it's done for your overall being. And I think that it, it, it might not be that for somebody like, let's say, Jennifer. You know, Jennifer right. found an up, Jennifer did not grow up hunting jennifer did not grow up eating wild game you saw her eating duck last night right. and her son gavin and she goes nuts for it but you know what's so cool about yesterday we were working on our podcast and she talked about when she moved to oregon to bend oregon and how healing it was for her to be in the pine trees and be in an area because she was from la and just how that was a healing area for her. And I don't think that she even realized that she was given so much credit to the outdoors, even though she says she's not going to join us on the road. <laughs> like, I, th I think that if she ever went, 
that she would experience it. Now, she might not become as addicted to it as us, but she would be able to come back and always refer to that moment and know what it felt like. And so I'm with you. Like, there are some people. And the cool thing about what we do is that preserve hunting is acceptable, right? There are people that live in the city, and they just don't have the time or the knowledge or the resources to get to the places that we can go to. Sure. But it's accepted for them. So, I mean, I, I never judge anybody that's only a they preserve hunter. Judged. But it's the coolest thing to see people get started there and then choose their own journey from it. 100%. And so there's this one place that I've always started my dogs back home, and I try to always go. They've got the funnest tower shoots and stuff. Um, and they have a group of older gentlemen that come every Saturday. And they used to just travel all over days of driving to get wherever they wanted to go on their traditional hunts and now they all meet at the club and they run their old dogs and they set up their coleman stove on their tailgate they sit there and they fry quail in the afternoons and just live it up at the at the lodge and it's just so cool because you literally can make this life whatever you want yeah this life is special and there's i tell people all the time there's no better place in the world for me than duck camp yeah and i've always said the best people are gun dog people there's a lot of gun dogs, a lot of different dogs, like not even people that are wing shooting dogs, but you know, I've got to chase bear with hounds, and that was so cool. Probably if I wasn't a wing shooter, I'd be chasing. I'll tell you one thing being around awesome dogs has done to me. What? It's made me very snobby and critical of bad dogs. Is, <laughs> Don't is, we is there know. Such, is there such thing as a bad dog? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm very critical of dogs now. But that's the whole thing is like, and I love not just about hunting this. dogs. I'm talking about pet dogs too. Yeah, like they'll get on my but nerves in a heartbeat. But sometimes it's not the dog. Like there are people that don't understand the potential of a dog. They just don't get it, and they're not educated about it. And this so, is something that this is something that you're going to have to have multiple episodes on. That's oh what's going to be so like cool. My favorite topic. That's going to be all what's time. that's so cool about what's going to be cool about your podcast is that you have a lot to touch on in this lifestyle of wing shooting and American upland or American waterfowling. I wanted to touch on Jen before we end, before you end this, because I know that we're on a time constraint. Um, what I saw Jen's confidence, we were talking about guns at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah. When she went for her CCW, mm-hmm. you, you had to get a winch to pull her off of that course. She did not want to leave. And this is, remember, you made the comment about we didn't know where we were going to get our ammo in the last couple of years because it's been so scarce. Yeah. Scarce. I'm like, Jen, this stuff doesn't grow on trees. <laughs> load them up. Load up another magazine. Load me up another mag. And I'm like, we got to go. And she did not want to quit shooting. She literally did not. She has so much confidence now that she carries that card. Right. And it's going to take practice before yeah. I let her, you know, go into fully carrying and doing everything that it takes and where to carry it and what holster and what style and all that stuff. And you're going to be a big mentor and influence yeah, and inspiration I mean, you in don't that. carry unless you know when But you there's so it. much yeah. to talk about about in this podcast that you have coming up is like what the Second Amendment means and what CCW means and defending and being able to defend yourself and your family and that peace of mind. We talk about this with Sig Sauer all the time of how it relates to the outdoors. And that, oh, right. And, 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 and so, there's so much habitat information and stuff. But you know that my heart is always Second Amendment comes before everything. And I was thrilled to have found SCI that covers all of that stuff. But, you know, first for hunters. And that's been our heart. And we share that. And that's very exciting. But you're right. Um so people should know too not every single state requires a course to get your concealed carry but i do recommend you take that responsibility upon yourself and get comfortable with your gun and find somebody that um, can teach you then ins and outs and cleaning and taking care of it and just being a responsible gun owner when you decide to conceal carry um you you will touch on all of this in this podcast just because it's called american wing shooting american upland everything that you're going to be talking about i think it's going to be so awesome to hear you and have a woman's point of view not just with your guests but just your story and your journey of how i don't know if a gun saved you but a gun has put you on in a different mindset of life and and living and parenting and mom and friendship and and everything that goes into it I, I, i i'm excited for it I Thank think you. that, you know, you, you know, you're one of your main sponsors over under, they have a ton of, you know, credibility with you and you have a ton of credibility with them. Their story is amazing. And it's weird to hear the success of them for a guy like me. Cause I'd never heard of them until I met you. 
still don't know a whole lot about them. And they're everywhere. I know. And that's the thing is that they're not everywhere because they're not here. They're not like out West a bunch. And it's, there's so many different sectors of this hunting life and Mm -hmm. this gun and wing shooting and and shotgunning life that there's so much to learn and take in. You have to almost choose like, like I'll, I'll apply it to this. Like if you're a Netflix junkie, which I'm not, but I do like Ozark. But you could go on to Netflix or just any kind of content machine and get lost in it if you're not careful. Right. So you're almost going to have to be like, and it was like that with me with archery whitetail hunting. I picked up a bow. I went on a Kansas whitetail hunting. And I was like, I got to put this down and just stop because this is going to take me out of the duck blind. And I didn't want to be out of the duck blind. But I knew that if I got too far down that 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 archery whitetail road oh, yeah. that it was going to take me down a journey that might have taken over my duck hunting and i love i love that idea that it could I- i'm not saying that it was ever on a- the same level to me as duck hunting but i got that same feeling of when that one you know that 150 inch eight point walked out in kansas i was like oh my gosh i lost it i missed him completely thought i was going <laughs> to fall out of the tree stand like literally like i lost my shit because i was like oh my god i got like beavis and butthead up there and totally just got destroyed the entire hunt started crying on camera like i just missed the biggest white till i've ever seen oh my god but i had to put the bow down and be like if i if there i keep is this up in front of an archery but and there but i'm saying that you got people are going to learn that there's so much that you can get wrapped up in and so many companies out there willing to help you're gonna have to discipline yourself and this is the coolest thing too that women don't know and i tell is every which i don't do a whole lot of women only events but they love accessories right like just shopping and stuff if they only knew the endless amount of accessories in the hunting world and once you get a dog, yeah, like every single female out there would own a hunting dog. <laughs> 100%. And that's uh, the thing is that I, I am so – I love this life so much because if we weren't out shooting pistols the other day or we weren't cooking duck last night, we still have the anticipation of – Axel going to the Grand and me getting him back for hunting season. Me taking Duff on a teal hunt in September. Me doing this in New York and hunting with firefighters and all and, and, and these police officers that went through 9-11 and, and learning their stories and how the woods are therapeutic. All the soldiers that we've hunted with, whether uh-huh. it's special forces or whether it was a wounded veteran. And you saw with Anthony Pace and Jim Shockey uh-huh. in Carolina a couple weeks ago how important these oh, freedoms that, of hunting are and how therapeutic. There's so much that, that goes sure. into this lifestyle and what hunting means to people. That's why your podcast is going to be so key for people to tune in because they never know what they're going to get. There's going to be true. tons and of information. Everybody's like, well, you got to have this certain niche. And I'm like, but it was all over the place that put my story together. And so I just want to showcase that and just let everybody pick their own journey. Yeah. And everybody's going to have a different beginning, middle, and end. It's like that Shakespearean play. Yeah. You have your, your characters. And then you have your story. Then you have your rising action. Then you have your climax, which is, oh, my God, those quail flushed or those ducks are coming in. Then you have your falling action. Like, your, your, how do you internalize all that? Your dog's bringing back a mallard duck in his mouth or a quail. How do you internalize that? You just took a life of an animal. Now I start thinking kitchen, yeah. Traeger, deck, flask cap. Cocktail. Well, even before Jack, even there's all so, that. There's so much cool stuff that goes into it. And then you have the conclusion of like that day is ending with the sun going down and you toasting your fellow hunters and friends and family and saying, thank you for experiencing this with me. Enjoy the meal. You go to bed and then you start thinking like a kid in a candy store at Christmas Eve again. And you just start beavis and butter yeah. again. It's the best lifestyle in it the world. It is. It is. And I hope that not only are we helping people that have experience and are committed to this lifestyle become better, but I hope that it it puts pieces of the puzzle together to bring more people into the industry. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming and for all the inspiration. Your team is just so wonderful. I'm just so proud to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Good luck with this podcast. All right. I guess that's something you don't understand. A crowd of soap and a big machine. I feel